So 25, No Time to Die. James Bond, retired from active service and is living a peaceful life in Jamaica when he's approached by his old friend Felix Leiter. Leiter asks for help in rescuing a kidnapped scientist. Bond's mission leads him to a dangerous global conspiracy involving a new high-tech weapon and a mysterious villain named Safin. Now, Jay, that is No Time to Die in a nutshell. What do you remember about this before re-watching it recently? Andy, obviously the film came out only a few years ago at at the time of recording this episode. So I think we should remember quite a bit considering it's quite recent. However, I couldn't really remember much about the plot. So I remembered that Madeline Swan returns, Bond has retired, then coming back, then he died at the end. Spoiler alert. Um, I remember that there was a car chase involving Bond and Madeline and their daughter as well. I remember that Blofeld returned. I remembered Saffron as well. And I also remembered, um, I think this is probably the only point in terms of the plot that I remember, that there was um, nanobots. Other than that, um, I can't remember much else, really. So I think it's quite a lot. But like I said, we watched this. We didn't watch it when it came out of cinema, like you know, you've mentioned before. So we we did watch it at home, but it was within the last 12 months. I don't think that's too bad. And like I said before, I've only watched it once, so this is the second time um, that we watched it. How about you, Andy? Because I know you've mentioned it before that you've watched this a few times, haven't you? I have, yes. Yeah. So I saw it at the cinema, got it on Blu-ray that Christmas, watched it over Christmas, and then I've seen it maybe three or four times since as well, so... Uh, like you, I remembered quite a lot. I remembered a bit more about the, the story as well, but uh, we'll get into that as I go on. So what I've noted as my my memories were the, the opening the flat with the flashback scene and Madeline, quote-unquote, betraying Bond. I remember there's a Spectre party in Cuba. I remember Safin. I remember the nanobots. And I remember that there is a new 007, which, again, will be a talking point throughout the podcast, I'm sure. And I remember that Spectre dies and that Leiter dies and that Blofeld dies and that Safin dies and that Bond dies. So maybe the film should have been called Plenty of Time to Die. <laughs> um, but let's uh, let's get in a little bit deeper, shall we? So the main villains. We've got a few. We've got Safin. We have Blofeld. Logan Ash. Obrachev. And Primo. And a couple of Bond girls. Dr. Madeline Swan returns. And Paloma. The theme song is No Time to Die by Billie Eilish. And the opening credits, so this replica, so when it first came on, it replicated the circles that we had from Doctor No. Um, there was ice, Greek, statues, moving cogs, love hearts as clock hands. There was uh, at least one sinking car, a Bond silhouette, an hourglass, guns forming DNA strands. That's obviously links in with the nanobots. And then we had the, the throwbacks as well, which we had in Spectra as well. So we had Vespa, Madeline, and Safrin's mask as well that we're going to discuss in, in a few minutes. Now, the all-important body count, so James Bond kills only, was 66 in No Time to Die. Yeah, that's an impressive number. We've got a few gadgets. got a, an EMP watch, QDAR. And Smart Blood is back, which was introduced last week in Spectre. Uh, 
Bond gives his iconic Bond James Bond. At 1 hour, 5 minutes and 24 seconds. No surprise to hear that he was drinking martini again this week. But you may be surprised to hear that we do finally see Daniel Craig's Bond in a hat. Uh, no throwing of the hat, but we do see him wearing one. Now, Jay, next question. What was your favourite scene? I think there were quite a few strong scenes here, Andy. And I mentioned later on which ones I thought were, were very good, so I won't mention them now. However, my favourite one is probably the chase scene that involves Bond, Madeline and their daughter. And it's the one that's in Norway, where they... They're driving over the bridge and then they go into the forest and they're being chased by the villains and a helicopter comes and you got motorbikes. And I just think that was really good. And it's one of the few times that you sense Bond actually has something to lose. And he's, I don't know if you say he's quite vulnerable, where it kind of goes back to on a Majesty Secret Service with Tracy. But this one, you know, because you've got, you've got a young girl, you've got, you could say the love of his life, maybe, up there with Vesper and Tracy. Um, I just had that feeling where he, he was really worried about losing someone that he loves. What about you, Andy? Loads to choose from, I thought. But the one that I went for is the party in Cuba with all the Spectre agents. So this is where we see Paloma. We'll get into the detail of it, obviously, as we talk later in the pod. But I just thought the whole mix of action there was some humor in there there was some twists along the way in in terms of you know one part of the scene in particular which really threw a curveball into the film just really really well done well shot uh, and just a fun scene so another question we're asking every week how many times did you reach for your phone now andy i recorded zero here but i must admit i it was very close to one and I remember I was writing my notes and I remember my left hand was going for the phone, but I caught myself because I thought I'm on a really good streak of having zero reaches for the phone. And I thought I will look at it after the film finishes. So I think it was Bond related from memory. I thought I was going to kind of do on the fly research. I think something must have happened in the film. And I thought, oh, I'll go and check that. And I thought, no. I stopped myself because I didn't want it to be finishing on our last film where I reached from my phone. Now, let's put the pressure on you, Andy. Did you reach for your phone then? So, despite having seen this film many, many times, maybe you think I don't need to concentrate as much, but I resisted and I'm also recording a zero. Now, next question, Jay. Um, I hope you're not going to give a zero for this answer, but what was the all-important rating out of ten? I gave it a very solid 8 out of 10, Andy. And obviously we're going a bit more in-depth when we talk about the, the rankings and ratings later on in the show. But I think that's, that's a respectable score, I think, to finish the season one on, you know, in terms of re-watching the films. What about you, Andy? Did you go higher, lower? I went slightly higher and I gave this a 9 out of 10. This is um, certainly one of my favourites. Uh, but we'll find out soon enough where exactly that fits in in the ranking of 25. But 9 out of 10, very, very good effort. Um, so let's get a third opinion, shall we? Uh, Jay, what did your wife think of this? I was a bit surprised. So she said it was a good length because you had to fit quite a lot of things in. And she said Primo was a weak henchman, which I, I agree he was. 
However, when she said it was a good length to fit everything in, I remember turning to her and seeing her like snuggled up on the little sofa and I'm thinking, she's not even watching it. But, and then when she said afterwards, I said, what do you reckon of this? And she said, oh, it was a good length, you know. It, you know, it needed to be that long to fit everything in. I was a bit surprised. For me, I can't think of much filler, really. You know, you're going to talk about how long the film was, but I don't really recall much filler. You know where we spoke about Spectra last week, where I said, you know, there were some scenes that you could basically get rid of, or even get rid of um, the Bond girl um, as well, um, Monica Bellucci. You could take her out. Where's this? I felt everything that they covered needed to be in there. So did you manage to get your wife to partake, Andy? Because I know you, you've mentioned um, in the previous weeks that she she might be watching this one. Yeah, for several weeks I did have a verbal agreement in place. Um, but I think the Skyfall experience kind of put that idea to bed. She really didn't enjoy Skyfall, so she was reluctant to watch this but she did see basically everything before the title sequence so um the first 20 25 minutes or so really um and the quote i had from her which i'm taking this as a positive she said i almost found that to be interesting um which i'm taking as a win i think secretly she there is a there's a chink in her armor against bond i think she could she could learn to like it but uh, I think that's the best we're going to get. But it's uh, it's something at least. It was quite a long pre-title sequence, wasn't it? So she, she stuck in there, like you said, what, about 20, 30 minutes? Yeah, I mean, I didn't time it exactly, but and, I, I, and it's not something we're tracking, but it's, it's probably the longest pre-title sequence of the franchise. That would be my estimate. So, uh, yeah, she saw a fair bit. And it was a very good pre-title sequence, has to be said as well. Almost interesting to her. Uh, the runtime for No Time to Die was 2 hours 43 minutes. Uh, it was released, finally, in 2021, and directed by Keri Joji Fukunaga. Apologies for my pronunciation, if that's incorrect. So, we usually talk about the general points here, and we've only got two here before we kind of move on. So, like Andy says, I do like to talk about the money. The budget, so it was $250 million, which is a reduction of $50 million compared to Spectra. Now, I had a query, was this reduction due to the pandemic? Did they manage to save some money because of the, the pandemic in terms of um, promotional stuff or anything else that contributes to the budget? But interestingly as well, it is still the second largest budget in the franchise so far. I, uh, I Can I answer that with a with something that may not be factually correct but i'm sure i'd heard i thought the pandemic actually ended up costing the film not in not only in like in terms of box office stats which i know you're going to get onto in a second but i think actually in terms of all the remarketing and and stuff because of there were so many delays it ended up costing them tens of millions of dollars if not hundreds of millions of dollars because of the delays that is uh, an interesting point Andy and you're probably right actually if they've produced all the marketing stuff for the original date then yeah they would have had to revise um, the marketing equipment I wondered why though you know we, we mentioned last week that the budget was 300 million dollars 
and if there was more because of the the delay because of the pandemic but we still only got a shortfall of 50 million dollars i wonder what the budget would have been then before the pandemic then if there was more promotional stuff what we need is i would love to have someone that works in the film industry andy that does budget so they can actually tell us what proportion of the the budgets are spent on the different elements if we got any if we got any listeners out there that might be able to help us that would be that would be a good shout I, i'm just while you were talking i was doing some live googling and uh, from digitalspy.com there's a variety report that says the film cost 250 million dollars to produce extra extra numbers including 100 million to promote and the price of numerous delays and there was an estimate that in order for the movie to break even it would need to make around 900 million dollars wow i suppose that brings us nicely on to my second point andy the box office stats so you said 900 million dollars well we can tell you that the the worldwide box office returns for no time to die was 767 million dollars which you know, you adjust it for inflation, which is, you know, we're only talking about a couple of years ago, is a $774 million in today's money. And I don't know how you can quantify this, Andy, but I wonder what impact the pandemic had on this one because we've said before, haven't we, I think it was last week's episode, that each of the Daniel Craig films are making around a billion dollars a movie, and this one's only took 767 So you would have said, especially with this with this being Daniel Craig's last film, you would have said this is a dead cert for at least a billion dollars. I would have thought so, yeah. I guess a couple of things come to mind, and I'm not sure of the uh, the rules that were in place at the time, but um, when this was released, was it full-capacity cinemas at the time? I'm not sure if it was or not. It may it may well have been, but it you know the, the timing of it would suggest that obviously COVID wasn't over. Maybe it even isn't over, but do you know what I mean? It wasn't like in the back-to-normal phase, certainly not in the UK anyway. But also, regardless of the rules at the time, there's probably still a nervousness about going out in public as well. So maybe that's kind of naturally led to a reduction. Um, so not not something we can necessarily accurately quantify, but surely it's got to have an impact for those two reasons. I remember... Andy, um, I got two points here. Um, you went to the cinema to watch this, so um, don't you recall whether you had to be a meter apart? But also, I remember reading various articles about this, and No Time to Die was the 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 first blockbuster film to be released after the pandemic. Well, sorry, to be released in terms of the ones that were delayed, and the No Time to Die was kind of like the the test movie to see whether films would then kind of be released. It was like the first one that was came out after all the delays. So it was a bit of a test on the market from what I recall. Yeah, that sounds about right. I don't think I saw it straight away when it came out. I think I probably left it a week or two. I don't recall the cinema being packed, but I think I may have... I may have actually snuck off work to watch it during the day, to be honest. <laughs> I can't remember if I booked... Uh, let's say I booked the time off, in case my former employers are listening, but I think I might have just snuck away and had a really long lunch break to go and see it, if I'm honest. 
a, a very long lunch break in. <laughs> <laughs> now I must have I must have like booked a half day or something. He says. <laughs> For <local laughs> um, let's get back into it before I uh, get myself into any more trouble. Uh, goofs and continuity errors. Couple to go through here. So on the prison computer scan of Blofeld, his date of birth is shown as 4th of July 1946. But he's only meant to be a few years older than Bond, isn't he? And then there's a photo that we see in Spectre that's uh, from around 1985 and the the newspaper clipping, which was also in Spectre, about Franz Oberhauser's death, which obviously we now know to be Blofeld, in the avalanche. Now the, the newspaper clipping is quoted as saying he was 16 years old. And uh, my my basic maths says that's not right, because if he was 16 in 1985... That means he was born in 1969, not 1946. And that's why maths is important, kids. So you don't make errors like that. And then a second one, and I'm not sure if this would count as a goof or continuity error, but it kind of was a bit of a head-scratcher, really. Uh, why did Madeline take Matilde back to Matera at the end, so Matera in Italy? It's a place of really bad memories, you know, as we'll get on to very soon. That was not a happy experience for, for Madeline. And then another question around this scene. Why was she speaking to her in English? So this is the, the final scene of the film. Speaking to, speaking to her daughter in English. But all the way through the film, she's been speaking to her in French. That, that's a good observation there, Randy. Maybe they were conscious of people watching on Amazon Prime and they didn't want the film to end with people not, want, no, not knowing what happened. So they did it in English for everyone. Yeah, or maybe there's uh, expecting a, a Brexit backlash in the cinemas. <laughs> but let's no, not, that's let's not get political. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're, yeah, we don't talk about politics on this pod. And going back to your earlier point, Andy, about the computer scan, hmm, that, that is interesting. I wonder if the, the computer was from the original Bond storyline and not the reboot version they've actually brought out the wrong one so you know i had the same thought but dr no released in 1962 meant that blofeld would have been a teenager so maybe was a you know a genius child and he started spectre very (laughs) very young um but yeah that was i had that thought too but no i'm gonna i'm gonna shoot that down straight away Okay, let's let's move on then because you know Andy mentioned it's a long film, so let's get cra- you know straight into the film. The Opening scene, we've got the return of the gun barrel, so it's at the beginning of the film again. So there are some notable differences though. So Craig wears a dinner suit for the first time, and this is actually the first time since Brosnan in Dying of a Day. Uh, we've also got the usual blood effects. As, oh, sorry, the usual blood effects are missing from the gun barrel sequence, and this is probably an indication of Bond's fate at the end of the film. So that is something that I did pick out and said to the missus about this, saying, "Oh, there's no blood on this one." Does it need the blood? Because you see some throughout the franchise, some with, some without. Uh, interesting to know what people think about that. I'm, uh, I'm on the fence, but I thought it it worked well. Um, but let's uh, let's move on. So we're in a flashback scene to start with. We're in Norway, uh, 
And it's the scene that was alluded to in Spectre, uh, and we mentioned on the pod last week. Uh, we see uh, a house in, you know, surrounded by snow. We see Mr. White's basement. We see a Spectre ring in there. And we find out that Mr. White was um, involved in the poisoning and killing of the family of the masked man that has arrived at the house. It's a mother and daughter. We realise it's a young Madeline Swan. And she witnesses that her mum is murdered by this man in the mask. Uh, not just any mask, it's specifically a Japanese no mask. Uh, and my notes uh, so eloquently inform me. Madeline is actually quite tough for a child because you actually see her. She shoots the man, drags him out of the house, but he's actually still alive. So his mask is broken as well. And we can see it's Safin, who actually has a, a scarred face, which kind of brings back memories of Star Wars and um, the Emperor for any Star Wars fans out there. I'm not one of those, so I'll have to take your word for it, <laughs> I'm afraid. I made a note here that um, the way he sits up on the ice as she's dragging him reminded me of uh, Michael Myers, or for any wrestling fans out there, The Undertaker. I mean, they're, kind of, they're just dead, and then all of a sudden they sit bolt upright. Yeah, it's, it's quite funny when he does that, actually, because he must have been wearing lots of um, padding or bulletproof vest. So Madeline runs across the frozen lake to flee from the villain, but she falls through the ice and she's actually about to drown, but Safin saves her as well. Now, Safin is played by actor Rami Malek, whose most notable roles are TV series Mr. Robot and the Freddie Mercury biopic Bohemian Rhapsody. So Andy, I've not seen Mr. Robot, but it's supposed to be good, but I have seen the, the Queen film, have you? Same, not seen Mr. Robot. Absolutely love Bohemian Rhapsody. Fantastic film, and he is tremendous in it. Yeah, he's very good. So we jump to present-day Italy, and we see Bond and Madeline in a car, and Bond is actually just taking it easy. He's casually driving, isn't he, at the moment? Casually is one word. I would say he's driving like an idiot. Uh, you see, you know, they're on kind of the cliffs, aren't they, or the, you know, the, the hillside. And uh, he just crosses over to the other side of the road while they're going around a blind bend. Uh, yeah, very, very dangerous. You should really watch what you're doing and stick to your own side of the road because who knows what could have been coming around that corner. Yeah, and um, touch wood, I've not had any crashes like that, Andy, but um, we both live near the countryside, so I, I do have to drive on some country roads, and it's very frustrating when that happens. But Andy, this I haven't wrote this down, but this scene kind of brought back memories of the... Um, Quantum of Solace, you know, like the scene it bit, the opening scene. I know it's not a car chase like in Quantum of Solace where Bond's being chased, but you know that kind of scene it views, sunny country, um, like rocky road is quite near, like a, a cliff edge drive. Um, it kind of brought back memories of that um, was Quantum. Uh, that, that was Italy as well, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Not the, yeah. not the same part of Italy. No. I, don't, I don't believe coming out but... of Venice, wasn't it? Uh, Vespadine yeah, in Venice yeah not far from but, Venice Yeah, but yeah some beautiful yeah. roads in Italy so Madeline tells Bond to drive faster but Bond tells her well actually I've deliberately paused there Andy because we want to make sure you listen to the one line in quotes section there to find out exactly what Bond tells Madeline um, but Bond is definitely enjoying this slower pace at the moment and we also find out a little bit later on that Vespa is buried nearby and Madeline kind of persuades Bond to visit Vespa's tomb. 
and we see Bond telling Vesper's tomb that he misses her and then burns the piece of paper as well. Yeah, it's a quite a, a poignant scene. He's, he's kind of, it's almost like he's saying goodbye, isn't it, really? Um, but just then he notices uh, a flower and a card with the Spectre logo on it and the tomb is blown up and he gets, uh, he's in a pretty pretty bad shape afterwards. Um, so he, I think he reaches for his phone, tries to call Madeline, panic in. Um, but then he gets chased by Spectre goons as he's on his way back. And uh, there's a shot here where Bond kind of dives behind, uh, I guess it's like a rock or it's part of the wall, isn't it, sticking out. And the car flips over um, and just misses him. It was really, really well done, that, but very quick thinking. Um, and throughout the whole thing, because of the blast, his hearing is impaired. And the way they they play with the audio to kind of demonstrate that, I think, is is really, really clever. Uh, we then get a customary Bond car chase. Bond's back on it. He's not driving slowly anymore. And uh, it goes back to the hotel. Um, and he believes Madeline has betrayed him, doesn't he, at this stage. And um, kind of drags her out to the car. And uh, Madeline says to Bond, there's something I need to tell you. And Bond kind of goes, I bet there is. Now, hold that thought, Jay. You carry on with, with what you're going to talk about, but uh, just we'll come back to that in a second. Madeline receives a call from Blofeld and he thanks her. So I put down there, it looks like a, a bit of a blatant frame job here by Blofeld. Bond's car is surrounded by goons and he's just sat there and he looks and Madeline's shouting at him. And it looks like Bond is he's either in a state of shock or he's just trying to process everything, kind of work things out in his head. Eventually, he pulls himself together and we see Bond fighting back using these gadgets on his car, so like all the machine guns and the smoke, etc. Yeah, it should be said, this is his uh, Aston Martin DB5 that we've seen from, from Skyfall and Spectre and obviously previously in, in Goldfinger and Thunderball. Um, and the scene closes, uh, you know, they managed to, to get away from the goons. Bond accuses Madeline of, of betraying him and, and puts her on a train and tells her that they'll never see each other again. And and I wanted to add to my thought earlier that I told you to to hold on to. When Madeline's on the train, she stood by the the door as the as the train door closes, and she briefly is like holding her belly. Now, the question I have with this and back to the there's something I need to tell you: is she trying to tell Bond that she's pregnant? Because there's there's reference to I think um, her keeping secrets. And obviously she said there's something I've got to tell him. And the reason I've made that note is because obviously I've said, you know, this is like the sixth, seventh time I've watched this film. Never noticed that before or thought about it in that context. But those two things put together just made me go, hang on a minute. She was trying to tell him all, all along. That's a very good observation there, Randy. I didn't notice that. So maybe I need to watch it another six or seven times before I pick up on that. But no, that, that's very good. My observation here is... How does Bond just fall for this? Because he can't have trusted her very much, considering everything that they went through in the previous film. You know, with her dad dying, with her helping um, Bond and then going away, and then Bond actually choosing her at the end of the film instead of killing Blofeld. It just... I don't know, I just felt this was a bit weak, that it was like blatantly... Blofeld has set her up and for him just to kind of dismiss everything that they've just shared and him saying goodbye to Vesper 
for him then basically just to dump on a train and say um, we're never going to see each other again I don't know I just felt that was a bit not misleading just a bit weaker the only thing I could say in his defense is that he's probably got that sense of deja vu it's history repeating itself isn't it he fell in love with Vespa and she betrayed him although you know did she in the end I guess that was it was too late to find out, but his his viewpoint was that at the point she died, she'd betrayed him. And now he's fallen in love again, and he's been betrayed again. How did they know he, he was there? Why why was Blofeld so kind to Madeline on the phone? And, you know, the reference to her being Spectre's daughter, and she is the daughter of Mr. White, don't forget. So there's always that lingering doubt there, I guess. But it's a, it's, it's a good challenge that you make. I, I think it... F- to me, it felt like she was innocent and she acted as if she didn't know what was going on. But, you know, obviously his guard's up. He His guard's up. And another point, Andy, before, you know, we move on, because um, we're only in the intro, which we mentioned, you know, it is 20, 20 30 minutes long. In the Daniel Craig films, he's he's been quite unlucky, you know, in terms of all the other Bond actors that we've had. We've only had Jules Lazenby that, um, obviously married and then become a widowed widow um, then Daniel Craig in his films he's fallen in love twice and you know he, he you know at this point he's lost both of them where other actors that have played Bond um, have never really experienced love before the majority of them and Daniel Craig has had two I guess the the saying is um, he knows how to pick them indeed so let's move on to, you know, we can't talk about James Bond without talking about the, you know, the, the, the theme song. So as mentioned earlier, the theme song was sung by Billie Eilish. Now, Billie Eilish actually became the youngest artist to record a James Bond theme song, and she was only 18 years old. And, you know, the song did win um, the Academy Award for Best Song Written for Visual Media. And Andy, I, I haven't listened to Billie Eilish Eilish songs before um, it's not the type of music I listen to but I always thought she was English until researching all this and she's American yeah I knew she was American I know a handful of her songs Bad Guy is a is a banger that's a really good one and uh, uh, You Should See Me in a Crown that's another good one for well, but beyond that I don't know much uh, about her her work but at 18 years old she's obviously making a name for herself already it's also the third consecutive Bond theme song to win the Academy Award. So Skyfall and Spectre song, so uh, no pressure on whoever's next. Um, the theme song does appear on the official no, Di- no Time to Die soundtrack, so that's uh, something of a departure from previous Craig films. And the song debuted at number one in the UK singles chart. Andy, just following on from you know me saying I hadn't listened to many songs, you've obviously picked out some. I did. Why... You know, we were writing these notes. I did listen to some of her songs, you know, on the Spotify um, um, Spotify system app. Um, and uh, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I listened to, uh, you know, a number of songs and then I went back to listen to James Bond songs. So, yeah, uh, I like this one, but no, I'm, um, I'm not a fan. Time so, has passed us by, hasn't it? That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I just sound like an old fart now. But no, I do, I do listen to more modern music. Um, I'm not uh, I'm not one of those people like most parents um, that li- listen to music just from when they were younger. 
I do listen to modern music, but not just... Um, that's not my style. I'm exactly one of those people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the with the occasional modern thing in there, but but yeah, I'm uh, I, I retired from new music when I was about early twenties. <laughs> so moving on, the music is composed by a legendary um, composer, Hans Zimmer, who becomes the sixth non-British composer in a film franchise. However, originally Dan Romer of Beast of No Nation, The Good Doctor, and Beast of the Seventh Wild, Southern Beast of the Southern Wild, was supposed to compose a film score. However, Romer left due to creative differences. Now, this is an interesting point because this is the first time in the franchise, so out of the twenty-five films so far, that a composer has been replaced. Now, Zimmer is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, composers out there. And he's won two Oscars, four Grammy Awards, and he's got a, he's had a very successful career. And he's composed music for over 150 films. And, you know, we can't list them all, but some of the, the big ones are Lion King, Dune, Gladiator, The Last Samurai, The Pirates of the Caribbean series, The Dark Knight trilogy, many, many more. And a couple of others that I really enjoy are Inception and Interstellar. And Andy, I wanted to go and see Hans Zimmer because he was touring around England. Um, I think it was last year. And I looked at Manchester because I don't want to go down to London. And oh, you're talking about hundreds of pounds just to see him. And I, I'm tight, Andy. I won't pay that. Yeah. Up north, we don't like to spend money. Uh, but that's that's quite an impressive list of films he's got to his name, isn't it? And no, no arguing there. And... I've never really thought about who my favourite composers are, but I have to say, it might be Hans Zimmer based on that list because there's some absolute bangers in there. Um, also, on, on the film score, we've got Johnny Marr playing guitar and also on the lead theme song. Uh, Marr was the guitarist for the Smiths and shared songwriting responsibilities with Morrissey. So, you know, they're bringing out the big guns for this film. Uh, but from the title sequence and theme song, we're off to Laboratory at MI6 next. Or at an, an MI6 known facility, I guess. I'm not sure if it's actually within MI6. Uh, and it's five years later, so we've got another time jump. And uh, one of the first things we see is a really random cameo. Hugh Dennis, uh, who uh, UK listeners may particularly know from the likes of Mock the Week and Outnumbered. He's playing one of the scientists. Uh, I just thought that was quite strange to see him in this position. Uh, we see the laboratory being broken into. And uh, they kidnap Valdo Obrachev, who we later find out is the scientist who has developed Project Heracles, which is a bioweapon containing nanobots that can attack specific genetic code. Now, Andy, going back to your point about Hugh Dennis, he's one of those actors, when he was on screen, I thought, I recognise you, I know you're English or British, and I know you've been on various sitcoms, but I couldn't place him. So you're obviously um, documented there. Um, a number of programs that he's been on but again you know if you ask me now if you said jay i'll give you a thousand pound to to name a sh- an, another program he's been on i would struggle because i know he's been in quite a few things but without googling it now i had to struggle to to list any the, the two i mentioned are the only ones that come to mind he's maybe done some other like panel show type things but um beyond that i'm not sure so there is a very cool scene here and you know, this this isn't a um, James Bond gadget, but it, it is very good. I, I'd love to see James Bond have this gadget. And it's where they kind of drop this 
it looks like a missile. So when they, when they dropped this down, I thought, what are they doing? Like blowing like a hole in the bottom and then, you know, they were going to escape that way. But they dropped this device down that looks like a missile that kind of shoots these smaller magnetic devices that attach themselves to the wall. And then they, they must use some kind of, um, I don't know what the technical term is, but magnetic field. So the goons and the scientists, well, I think the scientists has actually pushed down and the goons just jump down and this magnetic field allow them to like slow down and then land safely. I don't recall I've ever seen anything like that before in a bond um, in, in any film. So I thought that was a really cool idea. We, we cut to MI6 now and, and this is a very short scene here where we see M and Moneypenny talking. Yeah, they're talking about what's just happened at the lab, basically, aren't they? And um, M is hiding something, isn't he? Um, Money Penny is asking him what's going on. What should she alert, alert the prime minister? That kind of thing. And uh, he just says, "Nope, it was a gas leak." Just tell everyone it was a gas leak. Yeah, he's definitely um, not being open and honest with Money Penny. And M says, "Where is Double O Seven? Now, Andy, I must admit that I didn't get that. Um, that kind of quote originally when I was watching the film it was only when typing up the you know the notes for this that I was thinking oh he didn't mean Daniel Craig 007 he's meaning the new 007 it's very clever how they did that isn't it because the very next scene which you're going to go on to is Daniel Craig it's not not someone else so that one, yeah, it, that totally bypassed me um, until I was like, you know, typing up some of, these, some of these notes. So we jumped to Jamaica now and we, we cut to Bond and he's enjoying a bit of sailing and fishing. And Bond arrives at his place and he noticed some ash and a, a smoked cigar. So he, he knows someone as being in his um, little home, I guess you call it, um, beside the sea, which, you know, we obviously know is probably um, lighter. Um, that's kind of like a, I suppose it's lightest way of saying to Bond, you know, I want to talk. And Bond, he gets you see and get ready as a shower. Um, and a little note here, Andy, which I didn't put down, but my OCD kicked in. Did you notice when he was having a shower, he was brushing his teeth? And then he put his toothbrush like in a little holder. And I was thinking, surely he's not going to leave that out there overnight. Imagine all the bugs and everything climbing on his toothbrush. I'm thinking, like, yeah, I'm going to take it back in. Um, but, yeah, that's my OCD kicking in there. That's, that's, that's not a toothbrush holder <laughs> at all. Uh, yeah. And, it, what, and it, you say he's having a shower. I think we should set the scene for those who maybe haven't seen it. It's just a waterfall, isn't it, that he's stood under, basically? <laughs> it is, yeah. Like he's doing a herbal essence as ad or something. <laughs> I tell you what, his shower's blooming more powerful than my shower. I tell you that. Mine's like a trickle at the moment. But um, Bond gets ready, and like I said, he's taking a drive to the nearby town, and I'm assuming he's going to enjoy the nightlife, or maybe he's going out knowing that Felix Leiter is around. So he, he notices that he's being followed, and it turns out to be Felix Leiter and Logan Ash, um, who is a, another American agent. Yeah, Bond quips that he smiles too much, which I thought was quite funny. Uh, Felix and Logan are asking for help. They want to track down Obrachev, but Bond refuses. So Bond goes to leave, but his car isn't working, but conveniently a woman offers to give Bond a ride, and this is one we kind of saw in the background a couple of times. Well, she wants to give Bond a ride on the back of a motorcycle. She takes him home, and we very soon find out that she's called Nomi, and she's succeeded Bond as the new 007. 
Um, and there's there's quite a bit of back and forth between the two, kind of 007 and 007. Yeah, so uh, some nice interplay here. Yeah, well, that's the only playing that's going on there, isn't it, Andy? Because um, it looked like this could be a another lady to join the long list of um, Bond conquests, but she's having none of that. So we we have another short scene, and we're back at Q branch here, and the old gang are back. We've got Q, Tanner, M, and Moneypenny, and Bond phones M, and he, he basically says, what have you done, M? In my notes was dot dot dot. So I'm building up the suspense here for our listeners. We we jump to Cuba and we see Bond wearing the the baseball cap that Andy mentioned earlier. And I've got exclamation marks. I'm going crazy here with exclamation marks because I love Bond in a in a in a hat. But I was a bit disappointed. It was a a baseball cap, and we've not gone back to the old days of Connery where it's more formal. And this goes against my point, Andy. You know, I think it was in Spectra I mentioned that Bond, Daniel Craig's Bond, always seems to be quite formally dressed. And now we've got him walking around in a baseball cap. Yeah, it's the ultimate sign that he's retired, isn't it? It must be. Um, although, you know, he's back. He's not with he's not with uh, MI6 anymore, but he is working with the CIA. And he's also working with a lady named Paloma. Paloma played by Anna de Armas who is known for roles such as Blade Runner 2049, Knives Out, and Blonde, the uh, Marilyn Monroe biopic, which uh, is tremendous if you've not seen it, by the way. I re- really recommend it. It's a difficult watch. It's deep, it's dark, but um, she is fantastic in it. Um, Paloma takes Bond to a room, suggests that he gets changed, um, and there's some fun scenes where you know, I think she starts undressing him and Bond thinks, oh, hang on a minute, what's going off here? And she's like, oh, no, 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 I've got you this suit. And she also mentioned that she's had three weeks of training. And uh, she also, when Bond orders martinis for them both, she downs it. Um, nice, nice, fun introduction to Paloma here, I thought. Yeah, I I think she's quite spunky. How, you know, she acts, she's very like, not your normal kind of um, spy agent government worker is she she's you know there's a bit of bounce around um her and i don't i know she says she's had three weeks of training but i don't think it, it does she mention that she's new or anything apart from three weeks is that just kind of alluding to that she's quite new but you know she doesn't seem like she's worn down by the whole you know and work as an working as an agent no it, I, i'm not sure if if it's serious, she says it's like pretty deadpan. So maybe she is telling the truth, uh, but I think it's all just trying to set the the scene in the the viewer's mind that maybe she's a bit of a bumbling buffoon and doesn't really know what she's doing. Yeah, yeah, maybe, and I suppose it's a another. Um, uh, is that what the um, MI six are like now? You know, with Naomi and her young. Um, beautiful and Daniel Craig's bond now is just at the other end of his career and things have just changed but we we see the scientist and he deliberately drops the sample and switches it now this is a second time I rewatched this so I didn't remember this so I didn't remember why he switched it I obviously remember in a few minutes it, it becomes clear and Bond remarks that it seems like all the Spectre agents are here. So you see, he's, you know, the, the various people I Bond up and, you know, he's, he's casing a joint with um, Paloma. 
And it turns out that they were expecting Bond and the poison is released. Blofeld, um, he's using the, um, the eye and, you know, the, the speakers and says to everyone, it's harmless to us. But then the spectral agents start to drop one by one. And we know why now the scientists have switched the sample. Yeah, we got a fight that follows soon, featuring various goons. We've got the new 007 and Paloma and the scientist and Bond. So um, some really, really cool bits during the scene. Um, ends with Bond taking the scientist, Obrachev, to the the seaplane. Um, what, did, what did we... I was just thinking back to previous episodes where we got a bit tongue-tied with the uh, uh, the water boat or whatever it was called. <laughs> I can't remember what... That was funny because when that came on the screen, Andy, it just brought back memories of that episode we did. <laughs> we couldn't remember. And the wife said, it's a seaplane. It's a seaplane, yeah, which we now know. Um, really, just... I mean, that, I called this out earlier as my favourite scene. The whole The whole thing from start to finish was fantastic and I thought Paloma was a really good addition here and it turns out she's a real badass she kicks all kinds of ass in this scene not bad for three weeks training eh not bad and Andy I don't know what your view is is on this this is my one of the few criticism I have of this film that she does she's not in it enough for me even though I said you know earlier on I don't think there's any fillers, and I don't think she's necessarily needed in the rest of the film. I don't think she's she's relevant, but it's a fa- it's a shame for me that they introduced her in Daniel Craig's last film, because she could have been a, a a very strong recurring character. I think in the franchise, she she could have been a uh, recurring character with lighter, couldn't she? As like lighter's associate, he sets up the mission, she delivers on them but yeah she was brilliant really really good and, and i fully agree it's a shame it was such a a short-lived bond debut for her and we find out that logan ash is a double agent so maybe all that smiling was just fake and felix gets shot now ash and bond are having a fight and bond ends up being locked down below and in the boat i don't know what the technical term is when you go lower in the boat um but ash blows a hole in the hole um, and the boat starts to sink, and Felix dies from the gunshot wound, and Bond does manage to escape um, in the end. And this is a sad scene, obviously. Um, the, the the comment I had, Andy, and I didn't um, add this to the notes, was Felix Leiter in um, License to Kill obviously got attacked by a shark and lost at least one of his legs, but survived. But this version of Felix can't survive a bullet shot. So he's not as robust as the Timothy Dalton Felix Leiter. In his defence, it's a gunshot wound slash drowning <laughs> combination. So uh, yeah. may, maybe we give him a pass. But uh, I know he was double-crossed as well. Don't, don't forget that. He was double-crossed, yes. Um, but so was Felix Leiter in the um, Licence to Kill by the... I can't think of the agent that basically, you know set them up, you know, with giving the money to um, Robert Davies' character, which escapes my mind at the moment. Anyway, we end this scene with Bond in the dinghy, and this is very different to the earlier Bond films, where Bond is lost at sea with the Bond gal, how the films usually end, but he's very um, lonely, and he's lost his, um, I don't know if you say his best friend, but one of his um, close um, allies. Yeah, there's not many people he can trust in this world, and he's just lost one of them. So, yeah, it's a very sad scene. 
Um, we're off to London next, and we see the Union Jack Bulldog again that uh, the previous Anne had left for Bond. And Bond he goes to the garage, he uncovers a car, and uh, I recognise the number plate. And you know, I look like a number plate that's recognisable. And it's the, the number plate B549WUU on the Aston Martin V8 Vantage. And the reason I recognise it is because it's the same car that was driven by Timothy Dalton in The Living Daylights. So we've got another case of Daniel Craig going back to a Bond car from a previous Bond actor. Another good observation, Andy, with your car, um, especially reg numbers. You'd be great working in um, like the police, Andy, doing like traffic cams or something, you know, where you have to monitor reg numbers because none of these, these just fly by me. I, I struggle to remember what mine is. Um, so um, you, you do very well here, Andy. I'm like a, a walk-in AMPR camera. <laughs> Does that explain why you're always going to like little dodgy country lanes, you know, just clocking all the reg numbers? I'm just, just looking at number plates. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. But it's usually, uh, I don't know what the weather's like. That's why I just wear a Mac and nothing else. <laughs> Moving on. So Bond ends up saying his iconic Bond, James Bond, to the security guard. But Bond doesn't start off saying that. He, he does his, um, I think he says Bond, and the security guard just is like waiting, looks up, and then Bond is like, Bond, James Bond. So he, he seems a bit put out here. And I think it's another sign that Finns have moved on um, at MI6. Yeah, he's, he's a forgotten man, isn't he? I really, really liked that. I thought it was really cleverly done. Yeah, definitely. And... And we get a bit more of this sassy back and forth here between Bond and Nomi, um, which is, I, I really like the interaction between those two characters. And Bond then tells M, he seems very thirsty and small behind the desk because I think M has a drink and then while he's talking, he finishes that one, goes to pour another one. And Bond walks out and he, he just throws the ID badge into the bin and I was like, why couldn't you have done that with your hat? That's what I was thinking, you know, because it's in Money Penny's office. He's like, "Why couldn't you have done that in the hat?" And we could have done a tick. Yeah, he's uh, he's ruined our stats, hasn't he? There, that's what he's done. Uh, there's a scene later on with Q, Money Penny, and Bond. Uh, it's at uh, at Q's flat. I think he's waiting for a date, isn't he? And um, they're starting to piece together what's happened happening now with the the DNA nanobots. So the plot is thickening. Later on, we see Madeline and Safin. They're having a therapy session, I guess it would be. And uh, at this point, Madeline doesn't seem to know that Safin is the man who killed her and saved her from the frozen lake. But that quickly changes because he's got a memory box with him. Gives Madeline the memory box and she opens it and she sees the broken mask. Yeah, because I thought at the beginning of this scene where they meet each other, I, uh, I made the assumption that she remembered but you can tell quite quickly the way that they're talking that she doesn't recall who he is. Because you know when he sat up and you said like doing the Undertaker bit, I was then trying to recall, did he sit up but she was already running or did she not see the face or is it all that trauma that she has so it, she's forgotten about that? So it's only when at the beginning of the scene where you see him together thinking, oh, he's got something on her, that's why she's working for him. But then, obviously, the way they started talking, you think, oh, actually, she doesn't recall who he is. I agree that it, that's what it seemed like, but I don't see how she couldn't remember because she definitely saw his face because that's what made her kind of recoil in horror and start running. 
and his mask was broken at that point, and uh, the complexion of his face was clear through the mask in terms of like the disfigurement already. So, yeah, I'm surprised that she didn't recognise him without his mask on. Yeah, like any husband out there will always recognise their wives without the mask on, you know, first thing in the morning. So, moving on, because my wife listens to that and uh, I don't want her to um, put me anywhere in a frozen lake. So, Safin gives Madeline the poison and the wife made a comment here about the age gap between Safin and Madeline. So this is kind of, well, it's not linked to your point, Andy, earlier about the, the goof and continuity error of Safrin's age, but Safin doesn't look notably a lot older. I know he's scarred, but at the beginning of the film, she's a young child. I don't know if it's ever explained how old she is, but I would say, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, something like that, tops. And he's already an adult, and I would have pictured him maybe 20s then. And now, I don't know how old she is now, but you would say she's, I'll say mid, no, she's a doctor. She would have had to go to, like, you know, university. So maybe, would you say she's late 20s, early 30s? I would have said 30s, yeah. I, I would say there's got to be comfortably 20 to 25 years between between those two scenes. Yeah, I, I that's... The, the concise way of saying this, Andy, and I was just going the long-winded way there. So I, would, I don't think it seems at all that age gap's there. So that's, that's her comment there. Now, Madeline goes to Belmarsh and she, she sprays a pe- poison onto, the, um, onto her wrist, I think it is, or, um, yeah, her wrist. And she goes to see Blofeld. Now, she then leaves Bond hanging by not returning the handshake. Yeah. I um I just put in brackets here in, in the middle of your notes awkward and it was it was really funny to me the way Bond just kind of strolls up to oh Doctor Swan or whatever it says. <laughs> it's like, no, no, that's not the way to do it, James. I I um you know, post pandemic Andy, I don't think I've shook anyone's hand, you know, since it's over. So it's well, you know when that happened, I'm thinking, oh, it's post-pandemic. You don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that was, you know, because obviously it was it was filmed before the pandemic, but obviously it was delayed because um, I work in a hospital, so um, you, you know you try to minimise kind of contact and stuff like that. Even though the pandemic is over, you still have COVID around. So when this happened, I think like yeah, yeah, you know, post-pandemic, that's fair enough. <laughs> and then I try to think. I can't remember the last time I actually did a handshake when you did an introduction. Oh, yeah. I'm more of a fist bumper these days, <laughs> at, at best. Now, they're going to see Blofeld. However, Madeline, um, she, she, she's got cold feet and um, she's not happy um, and she leaves. But not before Bond, um, he unexpectedly um, handles her and the, bond, um, the poison is transferred to Bond. So the audience know that, but... Madeline, uh, I don't think she picked up on that, so she, um, it wasn't intentional at all. That was it. No, I'm I'm not sure that Madeline necessarily knows at this stage what she's doing. I think I think she was expecting that if she gets close to Blofeld, that will be enough to kill him. So she probably doesn't recognise the fact that if she uh, was to transfer it to Bond and then Bond transfer it to to Blofeld, that would kill him anyway. But I do have a question because I, I got the same 
notion from it that that's what happened, transfer from Madeline to Bond, Bond to Blofeld. But wouldn't Bond already have the nanobots in him from the party in Cuba? Because the spray that came down got everyone, including him, it just didn't kill him because of his DNA. So he'd already have that that on his person, well, you know, streaming through his uh, his blood. What am I trying to say? Coursing through his bloodstream. There we go. Put that into English. Um, and Blofeld is a member of Spectre, so it would already be in his system. So Madeline, she's kind of innocent, isn't she, in this, this whole thing? I, I saw your question there, Andy, and then I thought back. Now, it's targeted at DNA level. So my only comment would be that when the, the scientists originally did the targeting at, in Cuba, they didn't include Blofeld DNA in the, the you know, the, the targeting. And I think maybe they didn't include, you know, the way that you said is more efficient. Um, but it would then be reliant on Bond going to Blofeld. And maybe Safin knew that he was going to talk to Madeline and that kind of part of the plan was in motion so they didn't put Blofeld's DNA in the the bit in Spectre but yeah it would have been um more efficient if they did it with Bond because then you wouldn't need to bring Madeline into into play would you that's a that's a good point yeah and I guess obviously at this point the thinking is that Madeline is the only person who gets to see Blofeld um, so yeah, you've you've maybe shot my theory out of the water there, but so it's good detective work. Um, but yeah, just uh, just a thought on my side. I just didn't realise. I, you know, I didn't know whether Bond would already be be have yeah Bond would already have the nanobots or not. I, I, no, no, I I I agree. But a, a, an afterthought, Andy, is you know we've discussed in the past about um, gadgets. And um, sometimes I might, you know, inspire, say, um, the army or um, secret agencies to develop um, particular gadgets. I wonder if, you know, villains, you know, at home watch Bond films and say, ah, that's a good idea. And then, like, turn to the local, you know, the the scientists. I want you to develop a weapon that targets targets DNAs um, because that is a you know, a very efficient weapon of choice because they, they talk about it, don't they? Where they basically said you could release it and, you know, over time it might go its way to where you need it to go and stuff like that. It, it's a very efficient weapon. It's, uh, yeah, shockingly efficient, I would say. And the fact that someone's thought of it in this fictional world would suggest that maybe someone's thinking about it in the real world as well. So it doesn't, doesn't bear thinking about. Hopefully it's one of those things that, is purely fictional uh, but no it's an interesting question if there are any villains out there just skip this film don't need to worry about it it's fine um but yeah back to the film just to tie off this loose end uh, in more ways than one uh, blofeld and bond are kind of taunting each other through this scene and uh, bond loses his rag and starts strangling blofeld so therefore uh, it transfers to blofeld and bond lets go and he thinks yeah yeah all right send him away because he's none the wiser. And then he turns around and Blofeld is dead. This was another um, kind of issue that I have with... You know, I talked about Blofeld being wasted in the last film. And he's only... He's only in this scene. You hear his voice in the scene in Cuba. 
with the Spectre party. I don't recall you seeing him visually at all in that scene because it's his eyeball. So I just think it's a waste. You know, the whole waste of the character. I definitely prefer Blofeld that was done in the Connery films, how it's, he's teased throughout numerous films. It's, I just find it so frustrating. Yeah, he's, uh, he's your last level boss, isn't he, in, in a computer game analogy. You don't kill him first. So uh, I, I tend to agree. I think underwhelming. And Blofeld has basically said in the, the previous film, in last week's episode, he said he was the author of James Bond's pain. So you see things like Vesper, Mr. White, Le Chiffre, um Silver, you, you, um, Dominic Green works for Quantum, which is an offshoot of um, Spectra. But then, in the very next film, Safin, who's never been mentioned before, manages to take down the whole secret organisation that has been um, lurking in the shadows of all the other Daniel Craig films. And by whatever minute this is in the film, he's, he's wiped out the whole organisation on himself, you know, by himself with the scientists. When when you get into that level of thought, you do kind of go, well, hang on a minute, has, has this been thought through properly? But... Um... No, I, I think that's less about Safin and more about the misuse of, of Blofeld in this instance. But yeah, very good points. So we, we're going to cut through a number of scenes here. So Norway, then we go to MI6 and we're back at Norway. So Bond travels to see Madeline and he confesses that he made a mistake. And this is when we're introduced to Mathilde. So this is the you don't see any mention or hints at this stage do you that she's got a daughter no she just kind of uh, appears shocking revelation that that madeline has a child and bond is convinced that it's here that that it's his the <laughs> bond is convinced that she is his because <laughs> of the blue eyes but madeline insists she is not his daughter an interesting side note and i think it's interesting andy in that you only live twice novel and we have mentioned this in that episode of the podcast bond has a son um, with kissy suzuki called originally james suzuki now we didn't mention this as far as i remember in the blast from the past which is a short story by raymond benson james suzuki is killed by irma bunt which is a nice little throwback to On a Majesty's Secret Service. Nice, nice full circle there, and uh, uh, an intriguing element of the of the novels and short stories. So uh, we should probably check those out at some point, shouldn't we? Yeah, and I, Andy, I thought this was interesting because I was thinking, oh, so Bond has basically killed James Bond's wife and James Bond's son. However. She has never been killed by Bond on screen. But researching it, in the novel, it's Blofeld that kills Tracy. But in the film, it's Bunt. So I thought that was an interesting um, observation. And it's not something I recall we mentioning on A Majesty's Secret Service with the book versus the movie differences. I feel like I'm learning this for the first time. Yeah, so... Uh... This is this is proving to be quite the educational podcast. And now let's get back to the film, Andy. You know that's enough of the um, 
educational part of the podcast or maybe maybe not maybe we're going to you know educate some more people later on but we we see a, a portrait of dame judy dench's m here and also robert brown's m now unless i've missed something andy i think they're the only two m's that we see portraits of uh, i don't recall any um other ones so unless i've missed that uh i can't think of any yeah so um i thought that i thought that was quite a nice throwback um, and we, we obviously see M is talking on the phone as well at this point. Yeah, we flip back to Norway, and uh, Madeline is telling Bond backstory, and we find out he's being tracked by the villains, or at the very least they know where he is. So they have to make a, a run for it. He's no longer in the Aston. He's, uh, I think it's a Toyota, is it? He's driving. I didn't, I didn't make note of the car. I just said he's driving a Dadmobile. It's, um, it's. it's very similar to the car I drive, it has to be said. Although mine's mine's not a Toyota, mine's a, a Honda. But you know, it's a it's a four by four with a car seat in the back. Um, the Dabmobile. And we get a car chase along the road into the forest. Um we've got some really cool bits here. We've got cars involved, motorcycles and a helicopter. Yeah, this is my my favourite scene. I think it's very well well done here. And there's lots of things happening um in in this scene. And we do see that Bond pushes a car onto Logan Ash, so he he didn't last too long, um, but you know he did get his carpets. Yeah, this scene kind of reminded me of Roger Moore's Bond in For Your Eyes Only, when there's the the car hanging off the edge of um, I don't know if it's a cliff or hillside, or whatever, and then he just kicks the car and down it goes. So that kind of brought back memories of that. Yeah, yeah, I I didn't like Logan Ash. I didn't. He, he's a bit smarmy and I don't think he really warranted um, I don't think he warranted the, the honour of killing Felix really is my opinion and Safin kidnaps Madeline and Mathilde yeah we um, we get a few scenes of this next where they're, they're now obviously have to go and find Madeline and Mathilde randomly Nomi asks for Bond to be reinstated as 007 and it was kind of gave me a few questions that that came to mind um what was bond's new number when he was originally reinstated and i think nomi even asks um a couple of times but doesn't get an answer she keeps saying double o what double o what? and we, we never find out and if she's no longer 007 what's her new number and does the number really matter when you think about what they do for a living is there really that much importance on the number yes we you know we know from a a fan perspective that 007 is james bond and that's it's iconic and all the rest of it but think about what it's like in their world it's just a number right so why does it matter there, there there's some good questions andy and 007 it does seem to matter because nomi is you know like you said asking questions uh, about who it is and she makes a point about 007 um number and i think she said something like about retiring it um as well i don't know and it's not something i've ever researched andy in terms of the double o agents in terms of numbering because you would make the assumption that um the lower the better as in one um is maybe better but you never here unless it's um mentioned you know in any of the novels or you know we've missed something that there's a, a promotion so you know you, you're assigned a number 
that you, you don't like move up or down. That that's a number that you're given. I wondered whether it was sequential, but then that would make Bond the seventh ever double O agent, which doesn't seem like a lot. No, and I would have thought it was um, sequential as well. Um, but why, if it was, why would they have another 007? Why wouldn't they retire it? Or um, is it um, they only have, I don't know, say 10 or 15, and you have people on a waiting list and you have to wait so someone dies. Oh, the 007's died or he's left. Oh, no me. That's next to number available. Uh, do something like that. I, I don't know, and it's not something I've ever really researched, Andy, about the double numbers. I can't say I've either. My the, my one final thing that comes to mind is, is it like at the butchers where you have to pick a ticket back in the old days and you wait for it to be called before you can get your meat? Yeah, definitely. The lower the number, then, um, you want there. Um, but we're going to jump now to um, the, a plane, but also Poison Island. Yeah, so Safin and Madeline and Matilda are on the Poison Island, and Safin and Madeline are having words. He knows that Matilda is Bond's daughter. Bond doesn't yet, um, but it's interesting that Safin knows. And um, Safin picks up Matilda and he starts walking around the garden and talking about the various plants and what they do. And Matilda, you know, she's a small child, she's interesting. She goes to, to touch one of the plants. Madeline shouts to stop her. And uh, quite a funny quote where Safin says... This one makes you do as you're told. Yeah, that is a, a funny little one. He, oh, I just, I'm not in love with Saffron's character. He, he plays it. I can't think of the word, Andy, if it's a bit hammy or um, the way he acts, it's just a bit weird, I think. And all, you know, when he's on the Poison Island, it's just, it, it, it just really comes through because at the beginning where you have the flashback, you, you don't really notice his mannerisms. And then the bit where he's talking to Madeline in, like, um, say, like the consultation room, it's coming across then. But all the stuff on the Poison Island, it's... I don't know how is a word. I don't know if you know, get what I'm trying to describe. But it's weird how he, he's acting. I think so, yeah. I mean, we'll, obviously, we're going to talk rankings at the end in terms of where they fit. I like the Safin character, and I like the way he portrayed it. Reminded me of Dr. No in some regards but in terms of like the the mannerisms and things there's there's a there's a thespian quality to it isn't it it's not he doesn't act like a normal person he acts like someone who wants to show off and have a position of power maybe that's why I like him so much because he is acting like the old school Bond villain like like a Dr. No for example yeah he's not a um a traditional terrorist type of stereotype is he? he he's he's more of the kind of like megalomaniac type but there's a um he has a backstory about it you know with his his um family will be murdered by spectra um anyway so we we see bond nomi and q flying on a plane to um poison island and I've made a note here, Andy, and I, I mentioned this to the wife. I can't remember which film it is, but I'm sure Q mentions that he gets air sickness because Bond, I don't know if he does like a an eye roll or something. So I don't know if it's a film where they first meet, 
But I'm sure Q says something about he gets, gets air sickness. But he's obviously in airplane now. Yeah, I, I saw your note and I made the same note. It was in Skyfall, which is obviously when we're introduced to Q, that it, we find out he hates flying because when Bond is in Shanghai, it's Money Penny who acts as Bond's partner at the, the casino because she said, she mentions that Q hates flying. So, um, yeah, that's established. But then Inspector, he's on, he goes to Austria. I'm assuming he flew there unless he got the train, but that's not really an efficient way to travel. And now he's on the plane here in no time to die. So, uh, so much for hating flying. Yeah, unless he's um, developed some kind of anti-sickness um, tablets or device or something. But Bond and Nomi land on the island via a sea landing on this kind of like stealth plane drone. I can't remember if it's got an official name. And Madeline escapes from her a cell as well. Yeah, we're going to be jumping around a little bit because I think we both went a bit light on the notes here because this was when the film was getting really, really good. Um, we do see a scene with uh, Obrachov and Bond and um, Obrachov says to Bond, you'll never leave this island alive. I thought that was a an interesting bit of foreshadowing in hindsight. I I agree. That is... Um... It is very good. Andy, I've got a, a, a note here, sorry, that I, I didn't put on the script, but it's something I researched. Apparently, um, the scientists had a smaller part in the original screen play, but the director really took to the character and expanded the role to put him in as much as he could. And I think the scientist is, is a, um, he, he is a good character because, you know, sometimes... In the previous films, scientists just works for the villain. However, I, I know they're not a partner, and he, and he is working for Safin, but he, he's very much on board in terms of the whole villainous plot, isn't he? With like wiping out um, populations with this um, DNA weapon. Yeah, he does seem to enjoy his work, as well as the money, I'm sure, that's involved with it. Yes, yeah, multiple perks. Um, there is a shot here with Bond in a tunnel and the camera makes it look like the gun barrel sequence which is, is very good, I think. And Nomi kicks Valdo into the um, the acid and Bond kills Primo via um, the the eye that he, he's got with via the um, EMP, so the eye explodes. Now the wife, as soon as this happened, preempted the Bond one-liner and she said, like she muttered, blew their mind just as just before bond said it so i thought oh she you know she's lacking his bond franchise yeah she's she's invested isn't she she's coming up with her own screenplays in her mind that's uh that's some good call out there i i have a couple more questions around this whole section of the of the film so safin has obviously got matilde walking away with her and i think she bites his thumb or something and then he just lets her go and go right go on then go why why would he let her go so easily that just seemed a little bit strange and then to your earlier point around Nomi kicking Valdo into the acid she's gone to a lot of trouble to keep him alive for as long as she has and then she just kills him just seemingly at random like um just a couple of things that didn't really make that much sense to me I I totally agree Andy in terms of when um Mathilde bites and runs off I was like why have you just let her run off? Because you could use her later on. 
and you've made the whole big scene about it. You know when Bond and Safin meet and they sat down at the table, you made the whole big scene of like, you know, you're going to kill her. You can't do anything. And then he just lets her run away. Nomi, I, I always find it strange about these kind of things where I know in terms of building the plot and like the anticipation, but soon as Bond and Nomi enter the um, the room where they've got um, all the computers, I think it might be say like a server room. There is bits, but you got all your um, your DNA and like your, your lab tables. I would have just killed him because you think if you're going to die on a mission, at least you took the scientists down and you 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 know potentially. Um, making sure that they can't make any more um, bioweapons with, you know, the nanobots. So I would have killed him pretty much straight away. But then I suppose, are you keeping him alive just in case you get stuck in a corner and you need some kind of hostage and, you know, like, you know, that kind of play? Yeah, or, you know, keep him alive for information or whatever. Just, yeah, just felt to go to all that trouble and then to kill him so easily. Just kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. But... I like you mentioned earlier. I, I didn't make many notes during this because, I, I, as I mentioned off air, I've only watched this film once before, so I knew how this film ended because obviously I watched it before. So I was I was really enjoying watching the the whole scenes on Poison Island. So there, there's a lot more here that we know we've not described. You know, in terms of like the, my next point, Bond and Saffron. Safin has an eye um have an island. They they have a fight and he he snaps um the arm and Safin injects Bond with the nanobots and we've got that slow music playing in the background which is really good and Bond is really ruthless and kills Safin here. But there's obviously a lot more happening, isn't there, at this point. But you know, in terms of our notes, we we're, we're just kind of skimming over because there's so much that is happening in the two hours forty three minutes that you've mentioned earlier on. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of building to a crescendo at this point. And uh, you mentioned that the slow music playing in the background really sets the, the scene and uh, realisation is set in for Bond. So obviously he's been injected with the nanobots. Can only mean one thing. His sex life with Madeline is ruined. Uh, but Bond, he's still got a mission. He needs, he needs to save the world. Um, so he needs to make sure those blast doors on the island are opened I've, I've noted i've put reclose in the, but i meant reopened uh so he needs to reopen the blast doors because the missiles are on their way and it's going to blow the whole thing up but he's hurt he's injured he's not going to be able to save himself as well and you know, I, I can't do this justice by describing what happens so i would say if you've not seen the film you really need to see it i i really like this scene it's it's a shocking turn of events. It's really, really well shot. Uh, the music really adds to the drama, and I'm I'm not ashamed to say it. I cry every single time I see this. This is you know the end of Bond, and uh, I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. I could have said this was maybe my favourite scene, but it's just it's a sad scene. It's a very, very sad scene where everything kind of comes to an end for Bond. Uh, really, really good stuff. It is very well done. And, um, you know, people might have different views about Bond dying, whether he should die or, or he shouldn't die. It is um, it is a sad scene. I don't think it made me cry. I do cry a lot of films, but I don't recall if this made me cry. The one thing I noted 
was that um, I like that Bond went to the top. You know, you, you could have tried to hide, couldn't you? You could think, oh, um, if I go down below, I might escape some of the blast. But he, he basically took it on, didn't he, straight away? He knew there was no point living, you know, because you can't see Madeline or Mathilde. So he just went out there and just faced it head first, didn't he? Yeah, it was, it really added to the drama. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this in other episodes or whether talked about it off air or, or whatever, but when he's injected, I thought that would have been a very interesting way to end the relationship between Bond and Madeline because obviously he's injected so he can never touch her again. He can never see her again, basically, or his daughter. And then that puts Bond in a whole new world of hurt, doesn't it? But for him to actually die was really, really shocking. Um, so a number of ways it could have gone. Because it, if uh, does he say to Q, I can't remember if this is explained now or if it was explained earlier on, but he basically, he can't even stay alive and avoid them because if he comes into contact with someone else, then they might get infected but become a carrier isn't it? So it's not about him just avoiding um, Madeline and Matilda. It's about basically they can never cross paths with anyone that they've met before, um, you know, or afterwards. Yeah, I, I mean, you could argue to be absolutely the only way to be absolutely certain is to never be in contact with anyone ever again. Yeah, and I suppose you could have looked at it like Bond, you know, could basically say to um, M. You know, I'm a valuable agent. Um, you know, you want to keep me alive. So can you basically lock these two in a, in a cell so we never see them again and I can just go off and do my missions? But I think that would probably take it away um, from it, really. So moving on, we... I don't know what your thoughts are about this one, Andy. I'm a bit undecided. Um, so we, we go to MI6, and I, th- I think it's a sad scene. And it, it's quite brief, though. So... We got M, Money Penny, Q, Tanner, and Nomi. And we see them together in M's office and they have a drink to honor Bond and they've, they've poured a drink for Bond and it's left on the table. And um, at least one of them kind of does a little clink of their glass to um, Bond's glass. And M reads the following quote The proper function of man is to live, not to assist. I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them, I shall use my time. Now, Ian Fleming used this quote for Bond's obituary in You Only Live Twice, so another throwback to what we mentioned earlier, um, You Only Live Twice novel. And the quote is from All for Jack London, famous for The Call of the Wild and The White Fang. Now, that scene finishes, I can't remember the exact words, but M basically says, come on in. It's just like, it's just another day, isn't it, for them? You know, and, and an agent's lost. So I don't know whether that could have been extended a bit or by extending it, you kind of then um, not highlighting the fact that it is just another day in the office, agents die all the time. You know, it's 007, so, you know, as a franchise um, and for the fans, they love James Bond, but for them, it's just another agent. You know, they might be close to him. And so part of me thinking, oh, it's a shame they didn't have, like, a funeral or drag that bit out afterwards. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think a funeral scene may have had the desired effect as well. But but I think 
two two thoughts on on this particular scene. To your point around another day in the office, I think it is a bit of that to an extent. They, you know, they've they've humanized Bond to an extent, but by doing this scene the way they did, I think they've said right, it is now just any other day, so it's back to work. There's not going to be extended time off for grieving or or anything because he is an asset, not just a, not he is a person, but he's an asset maybe first and foremost. And I guess my other point around this scene is that I think by having it, it shows that Bond is actually dead. Whereas if you leave it on the explosion, where it looks like he dies, but then it's never kind of finalised, I guess, it could maybe be open to interpretation and say, well, you know, maybe there's a chance he survived. You never know, sort of thing. So... I think they almost kind of wanted to put, um, dare I say it, they wanted to put the nail in the coffin. <laughs> they wanted they wanted to, you know, pin it down that this is actually what's happened. Bond is dead and we are moving on without him. Um, but, I, but I like the scene. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, I liked it, but I just wondered where it could be different. I've got one burning question, Andy, which I didn't write down. I wonder, this is, this is where my mind is, Andy, I wonder who Bond left the Union Jack Bulldog to. Because obviously M gave it to him, so who did he leave it to? If he had a will at all. Yeah. I'm guessing maybe someone like a money penny. Will, will he have had time to change his will to this daughter that he's never met before? Who knows? Or maybe she just naturally gets things because it goes to next of kin sort of thing. Just clear his... Well, they'd already cleared his apartment out and then um, Skyfall. So uh, yeah, I guess we'll never know. But that's a that's one of those unsolved mysteries of Bond. Where did the bulldog go? <laughs> uh, but let's put a bow on this film because there's one final scene to to finish us off, and we when we see Madeline taking Matilde to Italy, and uh, Madeline's talking to her daughter, and they're driving the Aston Martin through the same roads that they were driving the earlier Aston Martin in the fir- the first scene of the film, and. Uh, she says she wants to tell a story about a man named Bond, James Bond. And uh, the film ends with the Louis Armstrong song, We Have All the Time in the World, which you will remember from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And it's the only original Bond song to feature in more than one film. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the secondary theme song for both, arguably. Yeah, and Andy... I don't know, so correct me if this is wrong, but I'm sure I read it somewhere in the research, but I didn't write it down. I didn't stay until the end of the credits or anything, and I'm sure I read somewhere, so unless you did or you know this, I'm sure it's, it comes up on the screen to say, like, you know how you used to say, like, James Bond returns? I'm sure it has some kind of word in it. Right, right at the end, James Bond will return. Does appear. The rain. So moving on to our regular segment of the one-liners and quotes, I'm going to kick us off. And I kind of, um, you know, we've kind of mentioned this earlier on, actually. So this is between Madeline and Bond. And Madeline goes, can you go fast? Sorry, this is where she says, can you go faster while they're driving? Just so there's no, you know, confusion here. So Madeline goes, can you go faster? And James Bond goes, we don't need to go faster. We have all the time in the world. Yeah, he's, he's taking it for a drive, not for a ride. Yeah, um, We have a, a short interplay between Nomi and Moneypenny outside Hugh's office when they're talking about Bond. 
Nomi says, I get why you shot him. To which Money Penny replies, yeah, well, everyone tries at least once. I think this film has some really good one-liners. There's some really snappy um, inter interplays between them, interchanges. I really like it. So we've got Blofeld and Bond. And Andy, I'm going to say this and I want to ask a question. Now, James, fate draws us back together. Now, your enemy is my enemy. How did that happen? And James Bond says, well, you live long enough. Now, I I think that's a play on the a quote where you basically say something like, you, you ling, live long enough to be a hero, you turn into a villain or you become a villain. Does that ring any bells with you? Because that's why I think that is kind of alluding to. Or am I mistaken? No, I think you're right. I think that's that quote uh, seems familiar in terms of the hero villain. Let me do some live Googling, shall I? Because I think that's what it's alluding to. But then I was thinking like, oh, am I getting that right? Or am I am I just mistaken? Or Okay, so first Google result from The Dark Knight. Harvey Dent says, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. So that's interesting, Andy, because you've obviously made a, a number of observations and comments about um, Daniel Craig and The Dark Knight trilogy haven't you in the past there's there's a definite um parallel there in terms of christian bale as batman and daniel craig as bond now all we need is the the super movie that smashes the two together bond versus batman said no, nobody is going to buy that are they <laughs> <laughs> um let me let me add another quote in again one we alluded to earlier so paloma when she meets bond she says uh, it'll be great I've had three weeks training. It's a, it's a good quote. She's wasted. Madeline to Bond. Madeline says, she does have your eyes. And Bond says, I know. I know. Yeah, and then a lot of things go boom all around him. And then we end the film with the quote I mentioned just a few minutes ago. Madeline turns to Matilda and says, I'm going to tell you a story about a man. His name was Bond. James Bond. And I think that's a fitting end to end the one-liners and quote segment. So moving on to our next regular segment, and it's just a, a one um, comment here. So I'm just going to do this one. So No Time to Die is not based on a particular novel or short story. However, they do borrow elements from a number of um, novels, including You Only Live Twice and On a Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, nothing more to say about that. We've ended the film on a... A sad note, let's lighten the mood, shall we, Jay? Do you want another of my world-famous James Bond jokes? I, I do want another one, and I wonder, is this going to be the last time a, a joke features on um, the Rating Room podcast? It's, I suppose it's to be determined. Well, I guess it depends if you think of me as a joke host. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm here every week. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> Sorry, I um so unprofessional let's get back on track so let's let's go into this there's a reason why daniel craig has gray hair in the new james bond film it's because he's got no time to die it's it's brilliant wordplay andy it's and he is he's looking very old in in um no time to die so i like what you've done there you've you've wordplayed and it's um observational as well 
you're kind of like the Michael McIntyre of the the podcast world because he he's very good at observations and jokes, isn't he? Uh, yes, I, I'm not sure I'd take that as a compliment. Though. <laughs> I'm like, you know, he's a fine comedian. Don't get me wrong, but am I not more on a level of your your Jimmy Cars and your Ricky Gervaises? No, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> That's the answer. No, I'm not. <laughs> Especially since uh, I don't actually write any of these jokes myself. <laughs> don't tell, don't tell the audience that. This is um, you're you're into the comedy world. We're going to see you on the um, at the Apollo stage at one you know one day, um, and I can't think of the comedy circuits that they have, but you know what I mean. So yeah, at your local flea market, <laughs> pantomime maybe. Um, oh no, I'm not. <laughs> Are you ready? Let's start the quiz. We're going on to the quiz, and maybe this is the last quiz in the in the um, the rating room podcast. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? So, I'm going to pull up the the quiz. So, just bear with me for a second. So. I say this every week, but we do have some new listeners um, as well. So I'm going to let everyone know. So basically, this is where I'm going to tell Andy four statements. And Andy has got to guess which two are correct and which two are incorrect. So I was the beginning of the the podcast. I did start with only one question. well, a one out of four. And Andy, I thought, shall I get revert back to that for the last time we do a quiz? And I thought, no, because I don't want to make it easier for you. I want to try to trip you up. So, are you ready? Uh, for the for the final time, maybe. Yes, I am ready. Okay. Oh, the pressure's on here. So, first statement. Lashana Lynch, who played Nomi has been a big James Bond fan ever since watching GoldenEye with her dad. Second statement. Carrie Joju Fukunaga is the first American to direct an official Bond film. Third statement. The film was delayed for so long due to to the pandemic that reshoots were needed for some product placements as they had become outdated. And the full statement, Anna de Armas had to endure an extensive workout program due to never appearing in an action film before. Most of her roles before Bond were Spanish-speaking romantic films. Do you want me to repeat any of them, Andy? No, I think I got them down. Wow, you've... uh... You have piled the pressure on. So uh, I'm uh, I'm 24 weeks undefeated. I've had plenty of 50%, too many 50%, if I'm honest, for my for my own high standards, and a few 100% along the way. But I've I've yet to have a zero. So you've you've pulled out the big guns, haven't you? Here? Um, I'm going to say that statement two about the the first American director to direct uh, an official James Bond. I'm going to say that is true. Even though I can't remember all the directors 
off the top of my head right now, but the few that do come to mind I don't think are American. So I'm going to say that one's true. And I'm going to say that statement three around the reshoots required for product placement, I'm going to say that one is also true because there was quite a massive delay. So I'm going to say false, true, true, false. So there was a, a slight delay there while I updated the my little tracker. So you might have not noticed that delay if Andy edited that out or he might have left it in to build the suspense. Anyway, so Andy, the first statement in terms of Lashana Lynch, you said was false and you've got that correct. So Lynch has had actually never watched any of the Bond films prior to getting the role um, in No Time to Die. And once the casting had been confirmed, she went back and re-watched them from Doctor No to Spectra. So it's a shame we didn't do this podcast before, Andy, because she could have listened to our podcast and re-watched them week by week and learned some other we, bits. We could, yeah, we could have done a 007 podcast with 007. We could have. And, you know, that... That might happen in the future when they've done a casting and, you know, a, a person in the film, they might think, oh, you know, I'm going to look for a podcast about James Bond and they find the rating room and then they will listen to us week by week and then they probably tell people on the set and say, no, oh, have you heard these two guys, Jane and Andy? And then we just build up a following and then that's when you get cast in the new Bond film, Andy. That could, that's kind of how it works. Or if we'd have done this after Spectre and done episodes 1 to 24, with uh, Jay, Andy, and Lashana, whichever or would it be Lashana, Jay, and Andy? I guess we'll we'll you know work that out in our minds in terms of what this fictional podcast would have looked like. But maybe she's cast, she joins the podcast for research, and then the film crew come and meet us and say, "Oh, we want to know what Lashana's doing," and they go, "Hang on a minute, we've chosen wrong here. Lashana, you're out. Andy, you're in." And I become the new 007. I could be the villain because um, I don't wear a mask, but the wife likes to put a bag over my head. So, you know, it is quite good um, in terms of covering my face. But moving on, Andy, the second statement that you said was correct. So Fukinaga is indeed the first American to direct an official Bond film. So there has been Americans that have directed Bond films, but they're not the Eon official Bond films so I try to confuse you there because I know we're not covering the um, the non-official Bond films in this franchise but that might have muddied the waters now the third one the pandemic delaying um, the pandemic delay meaning reshoots god I've got right tongue tied it's getting late um, for the product placements is correct so you got that one right and interesting, Andy, they they did spend quite a bit of money doing reshoots. However, there's a scene with the Nokia phone, which was, you know, because technology moves so fast, um, the, the, the phone in question, the Nokia one, was out of date and obsolete. However, um, they didn't reshoot those ones because of the amount of money it would take to um, reshoot that particular scene. So they did keep that one in. Interesting. So that's why we see James Bond on his 3310 playing Snake. <laughs> oh, the good old days. And um, 
that means the last one is also correct. Um, I was hoping this one get you on. So, Anna Duarmus, um, she didn't have an extensive workout. And, Andy, this is really interesting. She only had three weeks of training. And apparently, she kept phoning the director up and saying, I've only had three weeks of training. I'm not going to be ready. And she kept telling him and telling him. And he basically said, say that in the film. So, they put it in the film. So, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. I like that. So, well done. So, in terms of the, the last quiz of the James Bond film so far, you know, 1 to 25, um, you finished with 100%. So I'm, um, I'm pleased with that. A virtual pat yeah. on the back. Yeah, I mean, there's no time to die, but that's a very good time to score full marks. <laughs> that is very good. And um, like I said, there's no prize. We finished um, season one in terms of re-watching it. We do have a special episode coming out. And as we mentioned before, we've got some James Bond super fans. But that is the, the last quiz that I'm going to um, give you, Andy. Um Maybe we'll bring it back in season two. Uh, maybe not, but um, well done, Andy. Um, I haven't prepared any kind of plaque or I'm not going to whip out a certificate or anything, but um, well done. I think that's been a, a fun segment and it is a good way of testing your knowledge. It is, and I'm I'm pleased with my performance. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my, myself a rating of 7 out of 10 for my quiz performance over the season. Let's move on. I'm waffling. I'm going to have to edit all this shit out. <laughs> so, moving on, our last segment is the the infamous, famous ratings and rankings. We are the Rating Room Podcast. So, I'm going to kick us off. So, the, the run times. So, Andy obviously mentioned that No Time to Die was 2 hours 43 minutes. Now, it does go in at number one. It is the longest Bond film so far. Interestingly, the top three are all Daniel Craig films. The top four, in fact, are all Daniel Craig films. The top four and the bottom one. Yes, top four and bottom one. So he he does like to dominate um, top and bottom, um, which is a thing, apparently. So anyway, talking about the thing that we introduced not at the beginning of the podcast we did introduce it at some point i can't remember when the average run times and the the run time in total by actor so um daniel craig we are going to cover this in our last season which is end of season special so make sure you listen to next week's episode so i'm not going to go through everything now i'm just going to tell you where daniel craig finished so after no time to die and the end of the franchise so far um, Daniel Craig clocked in at 11 hours and 44 minutes and that places him in second place with an average run time of 2 hours 21 minutes only to be beaten by Jules Lazenby by 1 minute and I, I don't know, part of me thinks maybe we should um, exclude Lazenby but then, you know, we've, we've, we've put him in there for completeness um, but, you know, Daniel Craig might be a bit hard done by and maybe if they added a few minutes onto Quantum of Solace, it might have been higher. Maybe, yeah, if they'd have done the full film and not just the, the, what they managed to cobble together during the writer's strike. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Now, moving on, the kill count. Now, No Time to Die, mentioned earlier, 66. That goes in at second place. I don't think there was any doubt, really, of beating Spectra at last week's franchise high of 232 which you know listen to last week's episode we, we mentioned why that is so high 
So kill counts by actor for the whole franchise so far. Daniel Craig has finished his run. So across the the five films that he's he's had is 342 um, Bond kills, which is an average of 68.4. So based on our statistics, he is the deadliest Bond um, in the franchise so far. So we have to see what future Bonds, how they stack up against Daniel Craig's version. Last one for me before I pass over to Andy is the Martini watch. So as Andy mentioned, Daniel Craig does drink a martini in No Time to Die. And make sure you listen to next week's episode where we kind of recap um, the martinis and the other areas that we're discussing now. Indeed we will. Let's move on to the introduction of Bond, James Bond. So this came after 1 hour 5 minutes and 24 seconds, which is the fourth longest or 18th shortest, depending on which way we're looking at it, out of the, the 21 films that we had an introduction for. Four films we didn't hear that introduction at all. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's only the fourth one to, to break the hour mark. Um, so it uh, took him a little while to reintroduce himself, I guess you could say, based on how the scene went. Uh, we mentioned earlier there's, there's no hat throwing, and it hasn't been for quite some time, but we do see Bond wearing a hat, a baseball cap this time around. So for his final outing, Craig does don a hat. Felix Leiter, he's back in business. Uh, Jeffrey Wright is is also back for the third time to take on the role. So he he was the only Felix Leiter during Craig's era. And now next one, Jay. This is the one that you really like. It's the box office. So as mentioned earlier, No Time to Die clocked in with a budget of $250 million, which is the second highest budget of any film that we've had. Worldwide box office of around $767 million in real terms, which, casting my eye over things, and apologies, you may have mentioned this already, it's the third highest taking of any Bond film behind Skyfall and Spectre. Uh, So... In terms of the adjusted box office, not not a great deal of difference because obviously it's so recent. Although, as as we're recording, the the, the inflation's at such a place it's going up. I'm, I'm waffling again. Let's carry on. Uh, so, no time to lie comes in eleventh place in the adjusted box office, not too far behind Quantum of Solace. Um, a respectable outing, especially considering the uh, the times in which it was released, and. Just briefly to give you a little bit more information on that, it means in terms of adjusted box office takings, Craig tops the list with an average of approximately nine hundred and sixty-four million dollars, so just less than a billion per film, four point eight billion total adjusted box office. That is quite the pot of cash. Yeah, and. When you look at his films, Andy, it, it's the quantum of solace and No Time to Die that have let him down. And No Time to Die, like we mentioned earlier on, would be massively impacted by and the pandemic. So, like I said earlier, I, I, I do think he probably would have averaged a billion a film if it weren't for um, No Time to Die. Yeah, I mean, he's had a pandemic and he's had a writer's strike to deal with. So a couple of you know, pretty seismic events for the movie industry yeah yeah two things that you can't control 
so moving on to Bond girls, we've got the two that Andy mentioned earlier on in the pod, which is Dr. Madeline Swan and Paloma. Now, I'm going to start with Paloma, so I'm going to go for the, the lower rating one, and I put her in at 29 just because um, she doesn't appear in the film enough for me. So when you look at the people in my ranking, so look at our, web, look at our website, and you can see, you know, mine and Andy's full list because now as I scroll down, we've got 77 Bond girls um, at the end of the, the Bond franchise so far. And Paloma, she's gorgeous. You can look after herself. She She's witty, spunky. Um, there, there's some um, good comedic lines in there with Bond. So I, I think she's she's brilliant, but I just can't put her any higher because of the other people above her. So, like I said earlier, it's a shame she she wasn't introduced earlier on in the franchise. Or, I don't know what they're doing with the franchise now with Craig going. If they can bring her in in the next film, I don't know how it works. Because Daniel Craig's um, run is kind of a bit of a silo. Uh, you know, we, we don't know. But it would have been lovely to see um, Paloma again. Now, Madeline Swan, Dr. Madeline Swan, um, I put her in um, Unlucky 13. And just because I do favour the the older traditional Bond girls. So when I look at my top 10, I've got um, people like Honey Rider, um, Melina, Anya, Tatiana, Pussy Galore, Tracy. And then just out of the top 10, I've got Solitaire and Domino. The only kind of modern Bond girls is I've got a couple from the Brosnan era, Waylon and Jinx, and then um, Vesper. And I, I just don't, think Madeline Swan is as strong um, as those ones. I think she's got a, a good storyline. You know, you've got the um, the complexity there with her being Mr. White's daughter. And as Andy mentioned, Blofeld says earlier on in the film, um, she's a daughter of Spectra. So I like the, the storyline, but she she personally doesn't do it for me. So that's my justification. How about you, Andy? How, how have you ranked these? Do you Do you have a... Do you favour the modern Bond girl or do you favour the, the traditional ones um, like I do? I guess I'll answer that question fully in next week's episode. But what I will say about the two uh, from No Time to Die is we do have a difference of opinion. So I've got Paloma in at 14. And the lack of screen time is certainly something that's holding her down. But I thought she was tremendous. And with a bit more screen time and a bit more of an integral part to the film... I think she could have easily cracked top 10, maybe even top 5. So uh, despite the lack of screen time, Paloma at 14 is a, is a very solid entry. Uh, which brings us on to Dr. Madeline Swan, who cracked the top 10 last week, and based on her portrayal and performance in No Time to Die, I've moved her up the order. Um, and she's ended up at number 3. So a bronze medal for the Doctor. Um, I think... Very, very good portrayal, Inspector. But for me, this edged it. Just it added an extra layer to the Bond character. That storyline was was stronger. Madeline was as was more complete as a character, and I think I think everything about it just just screamed, um, you know, top top of the pile almost. Um. So yeah, she goes in at number three. So let's sorry, Andy. Just uh, as a reminder, 
listeners, you know, check out our website. You can see the full list there. There's so many that we can't really recap, can we, Andy? Line by line, like we used to do earlier on in the franchise. No, we, we'll we'll get into some some more detail in next week's episode, I'm sure. And stay uh, stay tuned uh, for a bit more information on that at the end of the pot. Um, let's let's start wrapping things up, and we'll move on to the theme song, "No Time to Die," sung by Billie Eilish. I thought a really, really strong outing, and uh, my favourite song of the Craig era, and for that reason, she goes in at number four. What about you, Jay? What What did you think of uh, of Young Miss Eilish? Obviously, I mentioned earlier on Andy. Uh, I'm not a big fan of her music. However, she is the highest Daniel Craig um, theme song, but that is, for me. Um, not really an achievement um, because it's it's top 10, but it, it's ninth position. One of the things I liked is throughout the film, is it, I, I really enjoyed the score. So not necessarily the theme song, which we're obviously ranking there, but I liked this, the score and there were, there were times where it was like the instrumental version playing. So I, I really enjoyed that. But No Time to Die top 10 for me in knife position and i think that that's a good in, good entry um for my rankings now opening credits um it, i think these are so hard to do so i mentioned earlier on we've got the replicated circles on dot to know we've got ice greek structures statues uh, moving cogs love hearts as clock hand sinking car bond silhouettes hourglass Gone forming DNA strands, which I thought was really good, and then um, so some throwbacks to Vesper, Madeline, and Safin's mask. Um, top ten, yeah. I don't think there's much to say. Top ten. I think Daniel Craig does have a a strong opening credits. That's one, two, three in the top ten for me. Daniel Craig films. So yeah, pretty impressive. I tend to agree. Um, slightly. Uh, down on on what we've seen previously, because I had um, I had Skyfall and Spectre in my top three. Uh, this was a bit of a come down from that, but still a solid effort. And I've also gone for tenth place. So just I was we won't go through all twenty five, but just casting my eye over things, I also have three Craig films in the top ten. Now, villains, this is a long list, so we're definitely not going to be going through all these. We now have 96 villains on our list, because we've added five more in this film. I'm going to go in something of rapid fire. I'll explain a little bit about each one, but starting, I'll start at the bottom again. Obrachev, 57th place. A nice character in terms of comedic value. Bit of a bit of a wimp, bit of a stooge. Um... A good, a good secondary villain, though. I thought he added a lot to the film, but ultimately, you know, not exactly intimidating or you know going to cause Bond any problems in the long run. But a, a nice addition to the film. And then I'm jumping into the top half of the table now with Primo in at 45. A lot of good action scenes with Primo. A lot of good fight scenes. Um, I enjoyed his presence on screen. Very physical, and. Uh, at times looked to be a bit of a match for Bond uh, with some of the fight scenes so uh, a, a solid effort there um, but it was he is a glorified henchman you know he's, he doesn't he's not necessarily integral 
to the plot, but a, a good part nonetheless. I'm going up a few places to 41 for my next pick, and that's Logan Ash. Uh, what was the word you described him earlier? Was it smarmy? Slimy? One of those two. Is Both would apply. Um, but uh, reminded me a little bit of Max Demby from Spectre. But I preferred preferred Max, so he's you know kind of a few places lower than him. But a, a decent part, you know, there was the portrayal aspect, and he killed Lighter, so he gets bonus points for that. But solid top half entry. Then we move on to to place thirty two, where I've got Ernst Stavro Blofeld, Christoph Waltz, much lower than I ranked him last week. Bit of a bit part player, you know, manages to cause a fair bit of mayhem and destruction from behind bars. But again, you you mentioned it earlier, his character was wasted. If you, if you think about where we've ranked and spoken about Blofeld in previous films, just doesn't compare really. And it's a shame. It's a shame because uh, Blofeld is, is an iconic character and, and deserved better, in, in my opinion. But Pretty well portrayed by Christoph Waltz, has to be said. Uh, which leaves the main man of the piece, um, Lucifer Safin, played by Rami Malek. Really, really enjoyed his portrayal. Very, very good villain. And he goes in at the top ten. So he is in at number eight between Xenia on a top and Mayday. I'm sure many men would kill to be in that position. Um, but again, you know, very, very solid villain and you know i've got four of the five in the top half of the table so um no time to die scores quite highly on average in terms of villains what about you jay what, what's your thoughts on the bad guys so i was disappointed with the villains in no time to die so primo goes in at 79 um he didn't do much wrong um in terms of the film however I marked him down for two main reasons. Bond got the better of him on a number of occasions, and um, he's not very loyal. So he's working for Spectra, but then when it all goes pear-shaped in Cuba, next thing you see, he's working for Safin. So, yeah, he's not very lo- not very loyal at all. So he's low down on my list. He's just above Elvis, actually, from Quantum of Solace. Now, Logan Ash, he, the very smiley double agent, I, I, I didn't like him at all. So he is in position number 60, just below Max Demby. So those two I'm not keen on. Now, Obuchev, Obuchev I thought was pretty good, but he, he, is, a, a, he is the main scientist, but he, he's very much a, a secondary villain for me. Um, so I put him in in number 49th position. And just below the Blofeld from Christoph Waltz in No Time to Die. Very disappointing. Um, I can't put him higher than Miranda Frost or, you know, people like Koskoff or Brad Whitaker. You know, some of the classic films um, from the 80s. I, I just can't do it. So then moving up. Uh, you know, up like 20 odd positions. So this might be a bit surprising compared to your ranking, Andy, but Safin for me, like I said, he, he, this came across quite hammy. 
Um, he's obviously got some kind of um, something going for him because he doesn't age. But he, yeah, this, I didn't like him. I didn't like him at all. So he is a main villain. So you do get some bonus points there. But for me, he, he's weaker than last week's Blofeld. Um, so I put him in, in 20, 22nd position. So just above Carl Stromberg from The Spiral of Me. Now, moving on. The last Bond film that we are doing. Unless, you know, we're still doing this podcast in the future. And they bring out the next Bond film. And we, we might have to revisit this, Andy. And do another rewatch. Or maybe we're going to add it on and just have to slot the new Bond film in. We, we can talk about it in the future. So I mentioned earlier on in the pod, I gave No Time to Die 8 out of 10. So as we've mentioned throughout the podcast, over the last 20 plus weeks, um, we're not having any films in tied position. So I've put No Time to Die in 7th, which is the lowest position in the 8 out of 10s. I couldn't place it higher than Skyfall which is in 6th position because I do think Skyfall is very good only to be beaten by Casino Royale by Daniel Craig in terms of the Daniel Craig reach um, era so top 10 I think that's a solid entry for me Gold just to remind everyone Goldfinger is my number 1 still 9 out of 10 what about you Andy? so 9 out of 10 I meant it was always going to go top 4 um, and I've put it in at number three, just ahead of Goldfinger and just behind Casino Royale, who has also got nine out of ten. Um, just, you know, all of the things we've mentioned, the villains, the girls, the story, the drama, uh, just a, a superb Bond film all round. But for me, just slightly falling behind Skyfall, which remains ten out of ten, and then Casino Royale. So my top three are all Craig films. Which um, may or may not come as a surprise. But uh, yeah, a fantastic way to end the Craig era. And speaking of the Craig era, let's talk about the movies by actor. So obviously, since it's third on the list, for me it's third of Craig's film. So just to recap, Skyfall with a 10, Casino Royale 9, No Time to Die 9, Spectre 7 and Quantum of Solace 7 out of 10 is how Craig's ended up with 42 points total and an 8.4 average. Uh, Jay, do you want to just recap your Craig films in order? Yeah, so my top five films, because Craig's obviously done five, is Casino Royale at number one with eight out of ten, Skyfall number two with eight out of ten, No Time to Die, eight out of ten, so... Not much to choose between those in my ranking, um, in my scorings. Quantum of Solace, 6 out of 10, and Spectra at 6 out of 10, which means out of the 50 points available, Craig got 36, and that's a 7.2 average. So in terms of the averages by Bond, Daniel Craig is top at 7.2. Yeah, and on my ranking with his 8.4, puts him top of the pile as well. So... Last one, Andy, in terms of our rankings. Bond actors. Number one, Sean Connery. Number two, Pierce Brosnan. Number three, Daniel Craig. Number four, Roger Moore. Number five, Timothy Dalton. 
and number six, Jules Lazenby. Before I pass over to you, Andy, just to recap what we ranked the Bond actors before we, we started re-watching these, I had Brosnan, Connery, Craig, Moore, Lazenby and Dalton. So I've got some variation between them. Not many. Most notably top and bottom, isn't it? Mid-table's the same, but top and bottom's different. Indeed, yeah, you've you've switched your order out, and uh, I've slightly done the same as well. So, so my order has ended up with Craig on top, Connery second, Brosnan in at three, Roger Moore four, George Lazenby five, Dalton six, and uh, again, I've uh, I've kept my top two as they were, but I've on rewatching, I prefer Brosnan to Moore, and I prefer Lazenby to Dalton. So, um. It just goes to show that when you look at things through fresh eyes, you can get a fresh opinion on things. Indeed. Andy, before um, you sign us off, I've done a bit of um, live Googling because I, when we were talking about it earlier on about the double O agents, I had this burning um, kind of desire to look into this. So this is what I've found. And, fan, you know, listeners, do let us know if, if you've got something a bit more reliable than Wikipedia. So, Andy... Double O agents. Now, so according to the novel Moonraker, it establishes that the double O, um, sorry, it establishes that the section routinely has three double O agents concurrently. However, in the film series, in Thunderball, it established a minimum number of nine double O agents active at any one time. There you go. That's uh, some good knowledge you've dropped there to to end the pod on um so i'm not going to be able to top that so let's let's bring things to a close shall we um so next week we're going to wrap things up from our side so we've been through all 25 bond films so far we've got various things that we've discussed in a little bit of detail but but i'm sure there's various things that we've not really gone into at all so we're going to come back for for one last episode of season one just to put a bow on everything that we've spoken about so far let's we're going to go into the rankings in a little bit more detail we're going to go into some of the um some of the film plot points in a bit more detail maybe some of the general points research goose continuity errors we're going to go through it all we're going to recap what we've learned what we've enjoyed or disliked about this process and just put everything in a nice neat package, tie it up, gift wrap it, and give it to you listeners next week. So listen out for episode 26, the end of season special. Well, that's this week's episode done. We hope you enjoyed it. Special thanks to the band Sugar Tongue for the theme tune to the rating room. You can find them on all the usual social media channels. And be sure to check out their song The System, available now on Spotify. You can find and message us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok and Instagram by searching The Rating Room. You'll find all our social media links on our website, theratingroom.com, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Or feel free to drop us an email at theratingroom at gmail.com. Goodbye, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week, right here on The Rating Room. Thank you.